Hey, just a quick message before we get stuck into this episode. This is a interview with the author of the the book we did over the weekend, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Nora Gedgaudis. Now, we spoke with Nora over Skype for almost an hour, but we didn't want to abuse the trust we built in that our episodes, interview episodes have been 35, 40 minutes, and we didn't want to just whack in an hour-long one in there. So, we've edited out uh, a chunk so it's going to be our standard 40-minute episode. If you'd like to see the full one hour, we're going to chuck it up as a video on our YouTube channel that we're slowly adding some more videos to. So if you'd like to get stuck into this 40-minute uh, section, keep on listening. If you'd like to see the full one hour, I'm going to chuck the link up to the video in the description. Uh, it was good. Good episode. Nora knows her shit, that's for sure. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. Yibida, 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 yibida. Mate, we just had a great interview with uh, Nora Gedgaudis. Good pronunciation as well. Is that correct? Did I do yeah. it right? No, I think you're right. Yeah. She's the, uh, the author of Primal Body, Primal Mind, which we did our sort of 20, 25-minute review of in the previous episode, if you want a bit of background on her work. Yep, and uh, another one of her books, Primal Fat Burner and mm-hmm. Rethinking Fatigue. So she's very famous in the paleo uh, community and she's a real author- authority on the ketogenic diet. Yeah, uh, yeah, spot on. So as we come in the uh, in the previous podcast, we're not for we're not biased in any way, but uh, yeah, there's definitely presenting the good uh, gems in this, the in this interview. I think. Yeah, take it from her; she knows her shit. That's for sure. She fucking does. Right, let's get into it. Yeah, welcome, Laura, to the What You Will Learn podcast. Thank you for coming on. Can you start off with just uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so you know, I'm you know, I'm, I'm fairly well known for my, um, you know, for my work in in ancestral approaches to diet and health. You know, some call it a paleo diet um, and uh, sort of ketogenic, I guess, approaches uh, to that. Um, I've got a better than 20 year background, you know, in, in clinical practice, uh, working with the brain and also doing nutritional consultation, nutritional therapy. Um, and I've, you know, done a lot of other things in life too, that have sort of contributed to my understanding of all this. You know, I spent some time living in the high Arctic, you know, near the North pole with a family of wild wolves, almost a whole other podcast, but uh, but that gave me a perspective that that started me down the path of of thinking ancestrally and recognizing what I now recognize to be the central, really, and central importance of dietary fat in human health, and in also what made us human in the first place, which was what inspired me to write Primal Fat Burner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and I guess a lot of you. I uh, probably also heard about some of my collaborations with a celebrity out your way, you know, Pete Evans. And um, I kind of, my, it was that book, you know, Primal Body, Primal Mind, that got him started down that whole, that, down that whole path, for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> for him. Uh, I, I understand it's generating a lot of controversy, but, you know, it, it, I think it's controversial because it's very threatening to a highly profitable status quo. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, mm. look forward to... We'll, we'll get into... Um, we can get into some of that. Yeah, yeah. looking forward I mean, to that. So yeah, just just that. quickly, how did our... Uh, so the paleo diet is based on how our bodies evolved through evolution. So can, can we just start off with talking a little bit yeah. about how we actually evolved? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so when I first stumbled across the whole concept of, of ancestrally based diets, in other words, eating the way that, you know, our ancestors did, most of the information and data uh, initially was based on, you know, indigenous people groups that had been observed and uh, evaluated and all of that. And, of course, the work of Weston Price, which you're your viewers may or may not be familiar with. Um, he wrote a textbook called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration as a result of this, and he took countless photographs and he did uh, exhaustive scientific analysis of the different diets he studied and whatever. And, uh, and this textbook, this resulting textbook, was actually required reading in Harvard anthropology classes for quite a long time. Yep. So, I mean, it was quite rigorous, and it's not a light read. You go through this thing, and it's like, oh, boy, your eyes bug out. Yeah. Primal body, primal mind is tough. It's not tough, but it's <laughs> detailed. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, there were two things that he found in common in the diets that he researched. And I've, you know... A lot of people came away from Weston Price's message and said, well, as long as you stick to food in its natural state, it's all good, right? Yeah. Jerf, right? Just eat real food. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the takeaway that a lot of people got from that. But I actually, in, in, in you know, my, my new book, I kind of challenged that a little bit. And I say, well, there's another way of looking at this, that... Um, he, uh, there were two things that were even even though the diets differed across the world in all of these different cultures, yeah. um, quite a bit. You can you know lots of different types of ecosystems that people were living in and different kinds of foods that were available to them and but you know foods in their natural state obviously. There were two things that they all had in common. Number one, and he searched the world looking for a real vegetarian or vegan culture. He really wanted to find one. Mm, he yeah. couldn't. He was quite disappointed about that. They're just they just didn't exist. Um, and so uh, he was he was quite disappointed. In other words, every single culture that he studied that had excellent health consumed as many animal source foods as were available to them. Mm-hmm. The second thing that I found particularly interesting was in every single instance of every single culture society that he studied that had superb health, the single most important food in each and every one of those cultures, the one that seemed to be prized for its greatest health-promoting effects, was the food that was richest in fat and fat-soluble nutrients. Yeah. And we're talking mm-hmm. animal fat and fat-soluble nutrients. And, um, and so that to me speaks to to two very foundational elements. And if you go and you say, okay, well, there are all these different variables in all these different cultures. Who had Which cultural diet had the fewest moving parts that still met all the criteria for superb health, yeah. you know, yeah. that he was able to demonstrate through his work? And it's, it's you know, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's the Inuit. Mm-hmm. Their diet was extremely limited to mostly uh, meat and especially fat. Mm. And uh, they had very, uh, very little, and, and in some cases negligible plant-based material in their diets at all. It was all basically meat and fat diet. And he was um, found them to be among the most impressive of any culture that he studied in terms of their physical health, their endurance. Their they had excellent skeletal health and dentition. They, they it was the one culture that had like zero cavities, yeah. Um, yeah. where they were still eating their traditional diet. Um, and he said they, they had extraordinary character. 
Um, they were he had they were very happy people. They had ex- exceptional dispositions. Very stable emotionally. You know, no depression, no weird mental illness. Mm. Just very happy. And um, and, and in any case, I think that there is it's the foundational message in that for me is that you know we've distilled it down to what is most essential to human health, and from there, and most foundational what we might consider, you know, the, all the rest of it is nuance. All the rest of it is that as long as those foundations were intact in every culture, yeah. um, you know, th- there's kind of an assumption that as long as something's natural, it's good for you. There's no rational basis for that assumption at all. Yeah. I mean, and just because our ancestors ate something, is that a good enough reason for us to do the same? Was it optimal for them? Is it optimal for us? You know, how would we know? Yeah. And where yeah. I went to find those answers, and what I covered quite a bit, actually, in Primal Body, Primal Mind, as well as Primal Fat Burner, is human longevity research, right? That can tell us what are the factors that seem to, that, that can be, um, that can be sort of, uh, sort of cross-reference, if you will, to these ancestral principles. And again, I, I, I went for ancestral principles because it seemed to me that the kinds of foods that would have been available to us for the longest period of time throughout our history, that to which we would have most consistently consumed, would have absolutely helped establish our very physiological makeup, our nutritional requirements. So to me, it's the only rational starting place, but to me, it's only yeah. a starting place, yeah. nice. which is why nice. the subtitle of the book is Beyond the Paleo Diet yeah. for Total Health Longer Life, right? And where longevity science comes in is it helps to kind of hone it down and what longevity science tells us is that the less insulin that we consume over the course of our lives, the longer we live and the, and the healthier we're going to be by far. The one macronutrient that most consistently has an insulin spiking effect, of course, are dietary sugars and starches. Yeah. And since there is literally no established human, uh, scientific, hum- scientifically established human dietary requirement for carbohydrates... Yeah. Me, that's kind of a no-brainer. Leave them out. They are mm. much more likely to compromise you than they are to enhance your health. Yeah. So leave this out of the equation. The other part to the equation that's well understood now within the realm of longevity research is that it's although it is quite important for us to meet our daily protein requirements, right? Which, it, as it turns out, isn't that much. Maybe. Well, I would say six or seven ounces a day. I forget how many grams that is for you guys. What is it, 30, 40 grams? Yeah, I think yeah. it's about 30. So I think it's about, uh, like, what, yeah. 200, 200 or, you, or so grams? thing over there. I don't, I know, we don't get that. <laughs> it's a foreign language. Yeah. Um, but at any, at any rate, uh, we don't require a lot. And it, it does turn out that our ancestors did eat quite a lot of meat. I mean, it, it, and when you think about it, from 2.6 million years ago up until about 10,000 years ago, when we had a cataclysmic end to, you know, the that last period of glacial advance, you know, the end of the last ice age happened very abruptly. And there was an enormous die-off of megafauna that occurred at that time. Over 120 species, tens of millions of animals, just poof, in the wink, blink of an eye, were gone. And these were animals that we had preferentially hunted for the entirety of, of our evolutionary history up to that point. You know, woolly mammoths had, had a, a body fat. I mean, there are at least four species of, of elephants, I guess, basically, and mammoths, mastodons, others, you know, African elephants, Indian elephants. Um, 
that have no less than about 50% body fat. Yep. And, and, you know, you're talking about the brain, you're talking about the marrow and the tongue and all the fatty organs that we would have gobbled all that up. Yeah. And ate lots and lots and lots of meat. You're in the wild, it's a feast or famine thing. When food is there, you feast. When you have a woolly mammoth, you've got a family barbecue that's going to last a couple of weeks. That's it. You know, uh, mammoth on the barbie, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that's how we are. You've, you mentioned that's how we grew up. So what what happened? Because before reading your book, I, I was under the impression that, you know, we need carbohydrates to burn and, and huh? glucose and all that. So what happened for us to, to end up having glucose as this main fuel source? Well, a couple of different things happened. Um, I, I do want to finish my thought really quick yeah, though, about protein because one of the other things that's very important is that we don't exceed that protein requirement. When we do, we set ourselves up for more rapid aging and a greater potential for cancer. If we meet those requirements but don't exceed them, and animal source foods are very important for that, um, because they stimulate hydrochloric acid. We have a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, and that hydrochloric acid sets the stage for all the rest of the digestion that takes place. So we have to have that acidic environment that, that animal protein affords. Um, but when we meet that requirement but don't exceed it, this very interesting thing happens where, and, and to put it in modern-day economic terms a lot of people can relate to, it's like your, it says to your body, look, it's a little too expensive right now to build a new house. In other words, make new cells. So let's just fix up the one we've got. And it literally, your body switches in its, in its emphasis, in, in it, the type of metabolism that's taking place, and it becomes focused on repairing you, on keeping you healthy enough, long enough so that you can live to reproduce another day. It assumes that there's nutrient restrictions, so your body sets about all kinds of regeneration and repair, which is literally anti-aging. Um, so there's tremendous benefit. Also, if you eat too much protein, that will also, in, in some significant measure, convert to sugar and get used the same way. So how all this changed, um, you know, where we've been eating fat as a primary caloric intake uh, for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, um, all of a sudden... Uh, as I mentioned, the last ice age came to a cataclysmic end, and our primary food source, a lot of it was gone. Um, the environment, the ecosystem was, you know, was was in a total state of upheaval, and we had to come up with something different, and things got a lot warmer. It became easier to grow things. Mm. Somehow we figured out that the, you know, that these... You know, these wild grains growing in the fields, we watched animals foraging on them, and they, they seemed to do okay, so maybe we could mash them up and turn them into some kind of porridge and consume them as well. Yeah. I, I think that a couple things happened. One, we were looking for another source of food, but another thing, uh, you know, there are basically a couple different, actually three different characteristics I can think of. Um, you know, so, you know, number one, um, these things... Basically, uh, you know, gluten-containing grains contain opiate-like compounds, right? 
and gluteomorphin, protonorphin are basically the proteomes of gluten that have a morphine-like effect in the brain. I think we became addicted to them, quite frankly. The other thing is that they're starch-based food more than anything. We can't actually, what a lot of people don't realize who say, well, you know, there's protein in grains. Yeah, there's gluten in grains, but human beings cannot digest that. There isn't a human alive that can actually digest and make use of that protein. And that, that, that's not my opinion. That's Dr. Alessio Fasano, who's the world's foremost authority you know, from Harvard on, on celiac disease. He'll, yeah. tell, he'll tell you that. The other thing is that, you know, so carbohydrates in themselves stimulate opiate centers in the brain, which make them appealing, you know. And, and again, some people are going to be more sensitive to these morphine-like compounds than others, just like I'm sure you've heard of probably people that maybe, maybe you know or, or knew, you know, heard about or whatever – who'd maybe tried heroin, and it was like, meh, not a big deal for them. Yeah, yeah, I tried that once, it didn't do anything for me. And then there are other people, they tried heroin once, and it's the kiss of God, right? So we all have varying sensitivities to these things, and I think there were some people who genuinely became addicted. They certainly trigger pleasure centers. Um, And so the third thing was that we also figured out we could take these grains and ferment them into beer. Yeah, (laughs) that's a big one. Yeah. (laughs) Right, you know, you Aussies know that one really well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I've heard of Foster's Lager. Uh, anyway. Well, that's... Uh... So, you know, and and that's, you know, and that's like freebasing gluten, actually. It's it's really, really bad that way. But um, in addition to being just massively carbohydrate. Um, yep. But, uh, but uh, you know, we, it allowed us, you know, because we were growing things, suddenly we're not nomadic anymore. And then we're sort of staying put in larger population centers. We had greater safety in numbers. But it was quite interesting, and I, I have an article about this right now on my blog, all about Otzi the Iceman, this uh, post-agricultural, you know, quasi-hunter-gatherer guy who, um, you know, his last meal was bread and you know, had grains stuck in his teeth and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, basically talked about what the impact was of, of, you know, agriculture on the earliest humans that adopted it. It wasn't good. Um, we began for the first time to develop what we call now the diseases of Western civilization. And some of them were deficiency diseases, but also metabolic diseases. And um, it's it, it's also quite interesting to point out that even though people say, well, you know, yeah, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, you know, cavemen only lived like 40 years anyway and all mm-hmm. this kind of thing. Well, we literally lost half that life expectancy once we adopted agriculture. <laughs> oh, so, in fact, it wasn't until the 18th um, uh, century that, uh, for the first time, that we started uh, living longer than about 25. Uh, up wrong? to that, well, so yeah, so um, so hey, yeah, maybe it wasn't. You know, the primary cause of death in in hunter gatherer people groups is accident yeah. and infection, and and also infant mortality. Frankly, yeah, um, we're talking about. When you compare their longevity and ours, you're basically comparing the relative hostility of our two environments now. Um, and and but the infant mortality thing also factored in quite a bit, yeah. you know, to that equation. So if if you survive infancy and you manage to kind of skirt around things like accident and infection, you stood every chance of living as long and healthy life as any, or you know, as long a life anyway as anybody does today, but without the in, you know, sort of the infirmary 
um, you know, without the diseases, the chronic and degenerative diseases so characteristic of our modern-day populations. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're living to an average of something like 75 years, but not exactly in mm. good health. We are able to keep people propped up longer, you know, it kind of turns it into a weekend at Bernie's thing after a while, you <laughs> know, people, you know, yeah. you know they're, they're hooked up to oxygen tanks and sitting in wheelchairs and, and you know, one in two people, if you live to age 85, will have Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. you know, um, and there goes your quality of life and anything that could possibly make life worthwhile. And I have a close family member dying of Alzheimer's disease right now. This is an awful thing. And yeah. this is a modern-day affliction. This is not something that just comes with old age. Yeah. We have to look at what we're doing that is compromising our brains and nervous systems. Something else to point out, and, uh, and grains have been, uh, have been definitely identified as a potential factor in the development of Alzheimer's. Uh, there are some autoimmune potential components. Hmm. It's also called type 3 diabetes which, as we know, is largely linked to excessive carbohydrate-based diets. Mm. Uh, and, um, and so one of the other really interesting things to point out, that in the last 10,000 years since we developed agriculture, we've lost just over 10% of our brain volume, actually just over 11% of our brain volume um, as a species. So evolution may not be moving quite in the direction we'd like, yeah. mm. as evidenced by reality TV, right? Uh, and sort of things like tabloids and God knows what else. The DAA, I don't know. So um, you know, it's it's there are a lot of these, um, you know, there are a lot of things that 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 characterize our modern food supply that clearly are not serving us well. And one of the things that I put a very strong emphasis on, it's not all about macronutrients, right? Proteins, carbs, fats. That's an important consideration for sure. But the first thing that has to be brought to bear is an emphasis on food quality. In other words, the health of the meat, you know, we're told that meat is bad and that animal fat is bad. That's been so soundly debunked now, it's ridiculous. We know actually here in the States that... um, there was a big expose in the New York Times not very long ago, in fact. In fact, it wasn't even in time for my new book, which really bummed me out because it was after the thing had already gone to print and suddenly this thing comes out saying, oh, look at this big expose in the New York Times where they found that the whole you know, animal fat, you know, saturated fat and, and cholesterol theory of heart disease yeah. was actually fashioned by the sugar industry. Yeah. It was that... Because the research at the time in the 60s was actually showing very, 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 you know, there was an abundance of research getting published showing the direct link between sugar consumption, excess carbohydrate consumption, and, you know, increased, you know, rapidly increasing rates of obesity and heart disease. Mm. And the sugar industry could not have this this stuff brought to light. So what they did mm. was they paid Harvard researchers, they paid people to publish things that would point the finger instead to animal fats, uh, yeah. and you know, uh, and as the culprit in heart disease, and uh, you know, and, and basically keep keep them out of the line of fire. Yeah. And of course, you know, whole policies, government policies, have been established around the world, in you know, with this respect, um, and tens of millions of people have died as a result of that. Uh, that deception, yeah. and I think we all have reason to be pretty ticked off. Now, one of the reasons, too, that I think 
that carbohydrate-based diets now, which here in the States, I'm not exactly sure who over there is responsible for establishing your government guidelines, but here in the States, yeah. our government guidelines are established by, you know, the United States Department of Agriculture, Jeez. right? <laughs> we have no conflict of interest there. Yeah. So we have the base of our food pyramid, right? Pyramids are, are tombs, folks, you know, they just, you know, so... Um, the base of the pyramid is all about complex carbohydrates. Mm. What I refer to as metabolic kindling. So your your brown rice and your beans and your whole grains and your sweet potatoes and things like that, we're basically talking about the equivalent of twigs on your metabolic fire. Mm. Yeah. Um, your more refined carbohydrates, your pasta, your your white rice, your uh, your breads, and then things like white potatoes and whatever. They, these are the equivalent of basically crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. <laughs> yeah. And then beverages, and sorry to say, beer, and you know, and and uh, sh fruit, you know, fruit juices and and sugary beverages of all kinds are really like throwing lighter fluid or gasoline on that metabolic <laughs> fire. Yep. Now, if you have to run a meta your metabolic wood stove, right, to you know generate energy and whatever else. And all you have is kindling to do it with. Well, you can do it that way. Yeah. But what are you actually doing? You're constantly preoccupying yourself with where that next handful of fuel is actually going to come from to keep the, the blasted fire going. Yeah. And mm -hmm. and it's a form of metabolic enslavement. It, it leaves you with with cravings. Leaves you with feeling, you know, mentally fogged and cranky or agitated or that thing that rhymes with itchy or whatever. Yeah. You know, in between <laughs> times. Um, and uh, sets you on a roller coaster ride uh, with big uh, blood sugar spikes and insulin spikes that shorten your life and, and, and cause metabolic dysregulation, and then with big plunges that increase your cortisol levels, your stress hormones, and that has its own weight gain effects and yep. all kinds of other things. And it's a you know it's a horrible roller coaster ride. Well, what if you know what's the alternative? Well, it, we are told of necessity that we have to have glucose as a primary source of fuel to run our brains and organs. Mm -hmm. And that's a misleading statement. It's only, it is only conditionally true. It is only true if we have metabolically adapted ourselves, rather unnaturally I might add, to yeah. a primary dependence on sugar, rocket fuel basically, as a primary source of fuel. Mm -hmm. um, but what's the alternative? Well, what if you're to take a nice big fat log and throw that on the fire instead? Yeah. You know, the human body and especially the human brain is actually better equipped and better designed to run on fat than anything else. Hmm. The, the thinnest person watching this has at least 100 to 150,000 calories, kilocalories of fat on their bodies yep. that they could be tapped into all the time as a source of fuel, even in the absence mm -hmm. of regular meals. Doesn't it make sense that nature would have designed us in such a way to be able to think clearly and run normally without having to eat every two hours, yep. mm -hmm. you know. So who's profiting from that other model? You have to think about if we're, when you look at the animals that are actually designed to run on plant-based foods all day long, to to eat carbohydrates all day long. So you know, cows and deer and you know and and sheep and you know sheep might be an apt analogy because yep. you know if you want to be you know if you want to be fattened like livestock, then eat like livestock. Right? <laughs> yeah. they, 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 these animals to fatten them up for slaughter so we can yeah. take a hint. Yeah. But 
when you look at the animals that actually are designed to live on plant-based foods, and I'm not saying plant-based foods are bad for us, yeah. but I'm talking about the animals that are actually designed to make pr- use of plants as a primary food source, right? It, it actually, it's an exclusive food source. Mm-hmm. So the true natural vegans of the world, right, herbivores, um, what are they doing all day long? Their faces are in the grass, they're in the bushes, they're in the whatever. They eat every waking moment of the day in order to extract the nutrition. But here's a really, really interesting factoid, something pointed out in Primal Fat Burner that I go into at some length. What a lot of people don't realize is that all large mammals are actually designed to make use of fat as a primary source of caloric fuel, including cows and sheep. A cow gets at least 70% of its calories from short-chain saturated fatty acids from the bacterial fermentation of all that fiber in their rumen. So they're eating plant foods, they're eating carbohydrates, and they get very little caloric energy from actual carbs. They're getting their primary energy from fat, but it's from this bacterial fermentation because you see ruminants and animals designed to eat a plant-based diet have fermentative-based digestive systems that are huge, including even our primate cousins, all of which, by the way, eat some meat. Um, All primates, with the exception of like gorillas, mountain gorillas and things, will eat some meat. And by the way, gorillas have a brain about a third of the size expected for an animal of of its size as a primate. but when you look at even the gut of a chimpanzee, they look like they've been drinking beer all day. It's a huge barrel gut, right? Yeah. Because it's a huge fermentation vat. Human digestive system has maybe about um, 20% of our, well, it's a much smaller digestive system for starters. We have a greatly lengthened small intestine, much smaller large intestine. And, um, and that large intestine only makes up about 20% of the total digestive tract. Whereas in a chimp, we're talking at least 52%. So they're able to ferment their way into a lot of nutrient intake and a lot of their caloric intake. And they actually get about 50-60% of their calories from these short-chain saturated fatty acids. We, on the other hand, with a a hydrochloric acid-based digestive system, like other carnivores, are actually designed to get our proteins and fats or whatever from the animals that have synthesized them for us. Okay. And and we are by far of any primate designed to eat the most uh, fat of any other primate. And in fact, the degree to which um, fat occupies the diet is also the degrees to which, uh, the, you know, I mean, well, particularly in us, the types of fats that are responsible for our unique human cognition yeah. are in particular, these 20 and 22 carbon chain fatty acids, arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, you know, a, DHA, yeah. the ome- that's that elongated omega-3, both of these are exclusively found within our diets in animal source foods, exclusively. And we have by far the most of that. That's what characterizes our brains. The primary, and, and DHA is the dominant one, it's an omega-3. Um, in primates, and, and uh, we also have brains that use 20 to 25% of our total caloric energy intake, which is huge. If you're an infant, your brain is using about 85% of your caloric intake. If you're a young child, maybe 45, 50%. Yeah. Versus, you know, great apes who may be, uh, whose brains don't demand more than about 8% of their total caloric energy intake. And their primary fatty acids 
that that are responsible for the way their brain functions are omega six based, not omega three based. Yeah. Which you know omega six is predominate in plant foods. So um, we're very very different from uh, from other animals and even other primates. Yep. And uh, it's our taste for meat and especially fat that has literally uh, is literally quite central to human health and also central to what made us human in the first place. Yep. Our brain tripled in size from the time we were dragging our knuckles across the savanna. Um, and, you know, the chimp's brain hasn't changed at all in size in our closest relatives, supposedly, in over 7 million years. Are there any actions, so it might not be moving completely the fat diet, but is there any really simple actions? It might just be a supplement that is like got high effect but very low low effort if, if someone wants to take something away from this interview. There are, there are no pills that are going to do this. Okay. I mean, you've got to make some basic foundational changes. The person has to decide that they, you know, that they they're ready to lose the weight, or they're ready to mm-hmm. to do something to try to overcome their dependence on medications, and and you know they they see themselves careening toward ill health. Um, everyone kind of has to decide where their priorities lie. If your priority lies with health, the thing to do is you know lose the sugars and starches. Nice. Um, it, you know you can eat as many fibrous vegetables and greens as you want. That's a nuance that I think is more important today, even though it's, they're not essential to us. Yeah. Um, I think they're more important to us now than they ever used to be along our, you know, during our long evolutionary history because they supply with extra antioxidants, with phytonutrients, and they have a detoxifying effect that I think benefits us in, in important ways in, given the toxic world that we live in. And also, it, it fills you with bulk, so it can also feed also the microbiome in that colon of yours and try to keep those bacteria ha- happy and healthy, yep. um, uh, you know, feed the internal wildlife, as it were. So, um, so what are some of those, so is this uh, broccoli, asparagus, broccolini, what are some specific examples? Yeah, so those are good ones, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, yeah. um, you know, uh, rapini, um, you know, so go hard on those, have as much as we want. Yeah, yeah, all the different greens, you know, kale and chard and all the different lettuces and sprouts, which are, by the way, really inexpensive to grow yourself and easy in anybody's home. Um, and, uh, you know, things of that nature are are really high in in a lot of good things, but uh, and we can't digest them completely and make total use, but we can certainly extrapolate or extract some really good phytonutrients and antioxidants from them. And so, you know, minimizing the sugar and starch, you know, increasing your intake of fibrous, you know, vegetables and greens, um, moderate your protein intake, and then use a, a wide variety of, you know, of fats. And again, the proteins and fats need to come from animals that have been fed on nothing but pasture their, yeah. their entire lives. You don't want to be eating, you know, feedlot and factory farmed mm. meat. It's yeah. 97% of the meat production in the world but we need to create a different demand because if you're compromising that standard, you're also compromising your health, mm. and you're also compromising, quite frankly, sustain you know the long-term sustainability and the health of the planet. Um, you know, grass feeding can literally turn around almost every environmental problem that we have. There's never been a more destructive force on planet Earth than agriculture, and basing the livestock you know industry's treatment of animals on on agricultural products that are genetically modified and full of all kinds of other things and then shooting them full of hormones and antibiotics and feeding them gum wrappers, stale gummy bears and cement. Jeez. You know, <laughs> this is not food, folks. Yeah. So, you know, really 
you know, taking a stand and, and, and standing up for what you want and what you're no longer willing to put up with. Yep. And, you know, the industries should follow suit with supply and demand. These are sort of basic capitalistic principles. Yep. Um, the, the industries will attempt to fool us into thinking other things, and the laws tend to favor industry. But increasingly, I think it's important that we develop a first-hand knowing of where our food comes from. If you can hunt and fish for it yourself, more power to you. Yeah, but nice. at the very least, developing relationships with the farmers and ranchers that are working hard to do the right thing and uh, developing that first-hand knowing of where your food comes from, going out to the farms, take your kids, you know, look into the eyes of the animals and things that are going to end up on your dinner plate. Yeah, well. You know, food grown organically, figure out how to grow some of it yourself. This can actually be a less expensive way of eating than the standard American or standard westernized diet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, you know, I, I've actually got some, you know, stuff to show that. Um that it is actually less expensive if yeah. you do it right. If you're shopping at the expensive specialty markets, well then, you know, you got me. It's it's very expensive. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be. Yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, that's probably my, one of my favorite parts of the book. It kind of um, got you more think like choosing food con consciously what you put in the body rather than just uh, on a constant roller coaster and eating purely for pleasure. That was, yeah, number one for me. Um, just shifting gears a little bit, uh, approaching the end of the interview now so what what is the most valu valuable thing you've ever learned i've learned i guess that you know without health you have nothing mm -hmm. and that you know I, there are a lot of people that have the attitude of well you know we've all got to die of something anyway and you know and they get cynical about all the you know conflicting advice and they just said you know i'm gonna eat what i want and i'll just drop dead someday mm. it doesn't necessarily work out that way mm. You know, if you know my, my my father, who was by the way, uh, wrote the textbook on cardiovascular radiology. He was a poster child for the AMA. You know, he was um, very famous in his own field, and he brought full body CAT scan and MRI to this country. You know, to my country, and 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 and, and you know predicted that would be the future of radiological medicine, and it and it has been. Um, and he was very proud of his low cholesterol, and he died of a massive heart attack back in two thousand six. So, you know, he was lucky, actually, mm. because it could have just been a stroke. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then he would have worn a diaper for the rest of his life and people, while people were waiting on him. Yeah. Or he could have had some other, you know, um, you know, he could have been hooked up to an oxygen tank. Or, or it, actually, he was on dialysis for a while. He ended up, he had, uh, um, he lost his, his kidney function uh, completely at one point and had to have mm. a kidney transplant. Um, you know, it, it's not about long life so much as it is about quality of life. This is what makes life worthwhile. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother's not so lucky. She's dying of Alzheimer's disease, and it's the ugliest way to die I can mm -hmm. think of. Um, and other people who are diabetic, you know, they develop diabetes, and then they start having, you know, limbs amputated, mm -hmm. you know. So it isn't all about this nice, clean, yeah, I'll just eat what I want, and then I'll just drop dead in a well. Well, you know, or you could get a cancer diagnosis and then, you know, um, and have, mm. you know, and have that to live with and, and be able to and watch the faces of everyone that knows and loves you mm. around you, family, whatever, watch you die a slow, horrible death and get put through what people get put through with those diseases. Yeah. You know, health is, is something that I believe is our primal birthright. And it's also, 
you know, we inhabit, you know, this this machine that is our human body. It, it makes sense that we should know something about it. That's why I wrote Primal Body, Primal Mind. I wanted people to have a manual so they could kind of understand and maybe connect some of the same dots I had along the way. Yeah. To be able to know how their body works and, and, and how all this stuff fits together in a way that just you instinctively understand. You walk into the store and you know what to buy and what not to buy. It's, you know so that you're not dependent on me or anybody else or hopefully any medications or anything you don't need to be in order to be optimally healthy or at least have some semblance of health in today's very challenging and toxic world. So health needs to be everybody's number one priority. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. I think that's a a good place to leave us on. And uh, yeah, an amazing book. Eight hours if you've got it, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You obviously know your stuff and you're obviously very passionate. So thanks so much for sharing today. And uh, we definitely recommend everyone grab a copy of Primal Body, Primal Mind. And is there, where where else can people find you online? Yeah, so you can find me at primalbody-primalmind.com. I also highly recommend you go to primalfatburner.com. Fantastic. Um, I also have an educational program that I've just launched. It's called Primal Power 52, and it's a weekly ongoing educational program. If you're a nutritional therapy practitioner, you actually qualify for CEUs taking the course. And it's just, you know, 30, 40 minutes a week for the most part. I think the last one I, I filmed or the last one I recorded was like an hour. It's like, whoops. <laughs> but needless to say, I tend to over-deliver. So there's... <laughs> There's a lot of rich information, but if you want to make the most of everything you learn from my material, that's the place to do it, because the original manuscript for this book mm-hmm. was 300,000 words and 3,000 peer-reviewed references, oh, wow. uh, more <laughs> and nine-tenths of those references got trashed by the publisher, or that trashed. I've got them. They haven't been thrown away. Yeah. But it's like I have so much more information to share than I've been able to put in my books. Yeah. And Primal Power 52 is the place to find all of that, to get nice. detailed answers to things you're not likely to find anywhere else, really. Yeah. So primalpower52.com is another place to go. Yeah. So yeah. there we have it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for spreading this message. And yeah, keep going with the journey and, and uh, yeah, improving everyone's health. So typically if a book has one passage, one idea, it can have the power to change your life. And that, I think, just justifies spending the 20 bucks and a few hours reading it. When you think of the uh, investment, you think of the input and you think of the outputs on the other end, the, the ROI, the return on investment, massive. Yeah. I, mean, I think books are some of the best things I've ever learned in my life, definitely, all from books. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, guys, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Or uh, shoot us a message if you've got any book recommendations. Email us at podcast at com. We're looking for our next round of books to read and review, so flick us your favourites. Flicker, flick it, flick it, baby.